0: but I want to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, back into the Old Testament today, back to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, in the Red Pew Bible, that's on pages uh, 614. In the Red Pew Bible, 614. encourage you to open a Bible today. I'm, I'm going to be moving somewhat quickly through some of these Psalms. Uh, we're going to be looking at Uh, psalms 113 through 18 you can be thankful i'm not doing psalm 119 uh, which is the longest psalm in the whole bible 176 verses we're not doing that today Um, but i'm trying to capture some of the the background to why it was so moving on the triumphal entry that people would start proclaiming blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and the significance to us in our faith today um, have you noticed that uh, in our world that there is a not very much public singing? Uh, I went to a hockey game uh, this winter, and uh, I, I had rare opportunities to sit right on, just like right behind the glass. Never have I ever sat that close uh, a- at a hockey game in my entire life, except for, you know, maybe Junior A hockey where, you know, tickets were two bucks, you know, to go watch a game like that uh, in Nova Scotia, but... I started singing the uh, Canadian National Anthem because I knew it, and I, and I grew up singing it. And, and, and then when they, I thought, well, uh, well I'm, I'm the only one singing, okay, so we're going to shift gears, and then it's the U.S. National Anthem, and of course, everyone's going to start singing. And I was still, I felt like the only one singing. I couldn't believe it. And uh, I, I just, it made me realize that there's not a lot of public singing in our society anymore, um, I was quite surprised by that. But I know that we have we witness music all around us. You know, where there's a music almost in the background of life, everywhere you go. You know, we critique it, we watch other people being performed, we put it on repeat, we consume it, and then we move on to a new sound very quickly. But even if no one is singing, we are listening. We're listening to the songs that are being sung, and sometimes we hit repeat because that song captures something that we we can identify that we're we're feeling internally. Uh, a few years ago, uh, there was a lady who sang on uh, America's, or excuse me, Britain's Got Talent, and uh, she got up on the stage and she didn't look too impressive, like. Wasn't sure what was going to be brought to the table. And yet, she blew everyone away by singing La Her name was Susan Boyle. Does anyone remember this lady? She was a phenomenon for a couple of years. It was like this greatest underdog story. And it just kind of, you know, listen to La and that song, I Dreamed a Dream. And all of a sudden, you're just like, ah, you want to start singing, you know. You, people identify, I think, with the underdog. Maybe uh, you've, you've, you know. The tune in Rocky Balboa, you know, starts coming on, you know, he starts running, and you know, you got the underdog theme going, you know. Songs, though, that truly last give us hope, and we identify with it. And the best songs help us to identify with someone who has overcome incredible odds and triumphed. Because I think it speaks to something, that in our own world and in the fallenness of the world that we experience, we hunger and we long to experience triumph. We know instinctively that this is not how it ought to be, and so songs like that move us. I mean, even our national anthem, Francis Scott Key's wrote that song, 1812, there were bombs hitting Fort uh, McHenry. And in the early dawn's light, while the bombs were bursting, what was still there? Our flag was still there. And that moves people. It's an underdog song. And so all of us as a people in America, we, we all have hard experiences. And when we, we sing that together, what we're identifying with is the hope and the dream of a better tomorrow that we will still be there regardless of the odds those those songs move us psalm 118 is just one of those songs that recounts the struggle of israel to be a free nation it was a song that a thousand voices started singing as they saw that donkey crest the hill and coming up over the rise and approaching Jerusalem. They could not yet they could not help but cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word blessed is remarkable, not so much for how it connects Jesus to his own preaching ministry. He he talked about the blessings of in his Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, but there is just a remarkable tie-in because he was the beloved son. He was the one who came in the name of the Lord. Uh, he was the representation of the heavenly father and he came to offer a relationship with God through himself. It's a remarkable irony though too because the same voices that shouted blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord is, were the ones who were shouting crucify him, crucify him. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. We can switch tunes very quickly, can't we? We can go from one song to another very quickly. But yet, story in song can be a vehicle by which we we embrace another story and make it our own story. And I believe that the Psalms collection the few that we're going to look at this morning, draw us, invite us to embrace a story of hope, of longing, and make it our own through the person of Jesus Christ. He embodied the story of Israel in his own person, and we can come to the Father through him. And so I want to emphasize this morning the importance of making the story of the cross our triumph song, making the story of the cross our triumph song. So, we have to do a little bit of background this morning so that you can see how when we get to Psalm 18, 118, that this would be a moving pitch, a moving sound to the people who were singing that day. And so, Psalm 118 is the culmination of a group of psalms that were sung during the Passover feast. They were called the Egyptian Hallel. Now, you may know the term hallelujah, right? It simply means praise the Lord. It's the English form of the Hebrew word for praise, praise be. And you connect the word luya to it, and you've got praise to the Lord. And so these psalms had a nickname of praise, and they're centered around uh, an Egyptian theme. Now there is also these psalms, uh, Psalm 113 all the way through 118, are these Egyptian hellels, and then in the middle here is uh, Psalm 119, which I, I said we're not going to discuss today, uh, but then 120 through 135 are called the great Hallels. These are the ones that uh, would be sung going up towards Jerusalem. But Psalm 113 to 118 were sung at Passover. They were sung at Yom Kippur. They were sung at the Feast of the Tabernacles. They were sung at the Feast of Dedication. They were sung four times a year. Kind of like uh, how we, we, we we can identify... Christian culture by Christmas carols, right? Christmas carols are sung for a month straight, it seems, right? Between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they become a repertoire of something that we can identify, and when we're out and about and we hear these tunes, instantly they come back to us. That's a very similar way of thinking about these songs. Because they were sung so frequently in the life of Israel's worship, people would just instantly start singing them, like some of us can just start to quote uh, Christmas carols. Now, these are called Egyptian because they bring to memory two periods of bondage, two periods of bondage in Israel's story. The bondage of Egypt and the second time of bondage in which they were captive to Babylon and the songs describe the journey of someone whose state improves it, it starts very weak and then moves towards a state of flourishing and it's because of an association with the name of the lord how do you associate with the name of the lord how do you associate with god if no one has ever seen him how would you describe God to even say, well, I I, I am connected to him? You would, you know, if you have a picture of your parents in your head and someone you're trying to describe your parents to a friend and say, you'll know my father when he comes because, well, he is balding, he is a little short, um... He's got a little bit of gray in his beard, and he's got this laugh that you could identify. And so you go, you describe some of these elements, but you've not yet really explained his person and his character. How will we know who this, this God is that that we ought to associate with in order that we may have the blessings that he offers? Well, the halal. if you turn in your Bibles to number 113, I want you to see a connection here, please. Psalm 113, we see in verse 2 and 3. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is, is to be praised. At the end of Psalm 118, there is a compliment, but yet there's an addition of these words. In Psalm 118, verse 26, it's these addition, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is intentional addition from what had started this group of songs, because we want to know a little bit about the name of the Lord. We want to know about His character. But how are we going to know? Well, we have to know it through the one who comes in the name of the Lord as a representative. Someone who represents the name of the Lord to us. So that we can understand who He is. And so God chose to reveal His character through relationship with a nation called Israel. God chose to reveal his nature gradually over time with, with Israel. And there's a metaphor that's used throughout scriptures describing Israel as a bride, as a, a spouse. But the bride in the bride's description is not, it's not on Glamour magazine. Okay? It's not, it's not like the, the newest bride, you know, go to the newest bridal show. You're not going to see Israel there because Israel looks really tattered. Israel looks barren. She's prone to slavery. She's spiritually blind. She's, ha- she's basically dead. But yet God reveals His nature in His marriage covenant with Israel. Israel. He reveals what he's like. If I were to tell you that you were going to marry a spouse who was down and out, you'd probably say, not on your life. There's no way I'm going to do that. I mean, we don't often look for, like, the, the least p- likely person to marry, to marry. Right? That's just not how we roll. But this is the story that reveals the tender compassion, the the underdog, the, the one who who... The prince who loved the lowly peasant brought this one up out of place of ruin and set her on a rock and a pedestal in a prime location. But this is how great our God is. And so each of these songs begins to describe, yes, the character of the bride, but also you get to see the beauty of the name and the character of God himself. So Psalm one thirteen. I'm going to move quickly through these uh, first five songs, very quickly. Psalm one thirteen. This this psalm talks about the character of the Lord raising up a barren woman, and it's reflected in the story of Israel. And so let's just read some of these verses, verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Well, that's a really good question. What is He like? He looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust, and He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people He gives the barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. But this is reflected at the very beginning of Israel's relationship with God. Three generations struggled with infertility. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, all three women barren until the miraculous work of God opened their wombs. He did this not just to show His supremacy over nature, He did this to show His compassion for those who are weak, those who are in need of being lifted up out of the ashes in the dustbin potential of, of history. If, if, if there's no children, there's going to be no nation. There's going to be no representation. And you remember Jacob's life? Jacob struggled at every turn with his relationship with God. He was a deceiver at heart. He even wrestled with God, and what did, he, what did God do for him? He broke his, he broke his uh, joint. He, he unset it so that he could then recognize that he needed to be dependent upon God for what he wanted, and but yet could never be on his own changed. God changed his name. Jacob means deceiver. Israel means prince with God. But that's what God does. When you have a relationship with him, he changes the trajectory of your life from someone who is potentially barren in all of their relationships. He sets you upon a rock and he makes you a prince with him. You know, Abraham looked up at the sky. He, he looked up at the sky and the Lord, who is high above the heavens, was over all of the stars. And he looked to God, and God said to him, Your children, your offspring, will be like the stars of the sky, like the sand of the seashore. You know, God delights in giving grace to those who are in a very low place. Psalm 114, we see another characteristic and also a movement in the history and the story of, of Israel. Psalm 114. Opening line, we see a picture of the barren but yet now fruitful bride is enslaved. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language, Judah became a sanctuary, and Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, and Jordan turned back, and the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills, like lambs? Tremble, O Lord, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water and flint into a spring of water. The psalm begins with the ongoing saga of of Leah and Rachel's children being enslaved in egypt coming out of slavery with a mighty hand the sea looks at its maker the sea looks at its maker it draws back jordan dries up sinai shakes and trembles rocks become water for the bride a lovesick poet may use metaphors That he's going to overturn heaven and earth for the one that he loves. But a lovesick poet cannot do what the Lord of Glory can do. God Himself overturns the laws of nature to provide for His loved one. It looked hopeless, enslavement, not a beautiful looking bride. But the nature of the Lord is being revealed in his relationship with Israel. Psalm 115, we move on. The Lord powerfully opens eyes for the blind. This this bride is still blind. Let's read verses 4 through 8. Actually, verse 2, we could start there. It says, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands, and they have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but they do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but they do not walk, they do not make a sound in their throat, and those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And then there's this appeal. "O oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Oh, Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is the help and their shield. Now, Israel, out of slavery, not even, not even a hundred days removed from seeing all the plagues unleashed on Egypt, not even a hundred days from seeing the Red Sea parted and their enemies lying washed up on the seashore. And yet, at Mount Sinai, what did they do? Aaron, who's mentioned in the psalm, Aaron called the people to melt down their earrings and their gold, and he created an idol and said, this, this is the God who redeemed you out of Egypt. Egypt. How blind, how desperately unperceptive, tragically unperceptive. And the reference to Israel, to Aaron, and others outside of Israel is very significant. And three times the poet goes on and says, look, why are you going to trust in something that cannot deliver you? You have to carry it around even, if you will. You become like that when you trust in that instead of the Lord who sits above the heavens, the one who who relieved your barrenness, the one who, who relieved your enslavement. The story of Israel is like a flock of sheep that wants to go its own way. They wanted a king at one time to rule them like the nations, but their shepherd kings devoured them. Israel will have to go the way in her history of another Egypt-like exile. And so, as you think about the history and the story of Israel, they're constantly battling with this spiritual blindness. They're wanting to go their own way, and they want kings that will lead them. They won't submit themselves to the true and living God. And so, they get removed from the land again. Gone as it will as it appears. Forever. But death for God's bride cannot be the final step. And so we see a connection between Psalm 115 into 116, in which the psalmist recognizes that the one whom the Lord loves will not really, in the end, die. God's bride deserves death. Psalm 116 is a a psalm that's often read at funerals. You may not realize that, but it is in a context of progression in the story of Israel. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And for centuries, as I said at the beginning, these psalms were were sung at major festivals four times a year. At one of the at one of the particular uh, Yom Kippur, one of the festivals in the fall, the Day of Atonement. This uh, Egyptian Hallel was sung together as a people, but they also read it in conjunction with some, some of the Old Testament prophets. They actually read it with the Book of Jonah. The Book of Jonah. Why Jonah? Well, the story of Jonah the prophet of God who runs away from his responsibility is a really a lot like the story of Israel. Israel had access to the law. They had the temple. They had the law of Moses. They had everything to help them to see, to not be blind. But they willfully walked away from God and caused their own death as a nation. But Jonah reveals in the story... Ironically, at the end of the story, that Jonah really knew who the character of his God was, and yet he purposely walked away from his God. If you know the story of Jonah, at the end, he, he gets spit up on the seashore, and he goes and he preaches reluctantly to, to Nineveh, and he goes and sits out away from the city waiting for like destruction to come down, and he's angry. And God asks him, well, why are you angry, Jonah? And he says the right answer. He says, I knew, I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in mercy and steadfast love. He knew the right answer, but yet he purposely was walking in the ways of death. He boarded a ship trying to go to the ends of the earth, away from where God would have him to go, in his own self, telling the story of Israel. Israel has wanted to walk away from God, even the one who's redeemed them. They've been blind. And the story of Jonah is really the story of the Lord bringing his beloved prophet back out of the grave and if you will, it's the story of God bringing Israel out of the grave. So how does this relate to, to Jonah? I really hope that many of you got to, can see this since we, we on midweek discussed this, the prophet Jonah, over January and February, and some of the imagery in Jonah's prayer. Jonah prayed, And he used the exact same imagery that's in Psalm 116. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pains of Sheol laid hold upon me. I suffered distress and anguish. This is just about the exact same words that Jonah prayed when he was in the belly of the whale. They call, then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, righteous, and the God, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, and I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And as we jump to the end here, I want you to notice as he he he, he says, I thank God for the resurrection of my soul, I will therefore worship God in his temple, and I will fulfill my vows. Look at this, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst. O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This is like almost a carbon copy of the prayer of Jonah from the belly of the whale being brought up, as it were, out of the grave. So, and as I I read these and I see these, I see that Israel, like Jonah, would appear to die and disappear from the land. But yet God in His infinite power has resurrected a nation to return to the land, to worship Him in His temple, And through these psalms, we're hearing the echoes of Israel's history. And what's more, we're hearing God's steadfast character. He loves His people. He loves His wayward bride. And when Israel hears the name of the Lord, she ought to be seeing one that she should cling to and not run away from. And so we come to Psalm 117. Psalm 117. This is the shortest psalm in the Bible, just two verses. And so we have, like, this, this, this description of a wayward bride, we have the character revealed that God is faithful to her, and now this, these short verses, they're kind of like a worship song bridge. They're just like, they're, they're kind of like a chorus that kind of bridges us to the next and last and greatest verse and it's a repetition, and he says, "'Praise the Lord, all nations, extol Him, all peoples, for great is His steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever.'" Praise the Lord. That's the essence of God's character. That's the essence of His name. This is what... So when people say, Jehovah, Yahweh, they should be thinking His steadfast love, His care and concern... His love to to redeem the barren, to free the slave, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring life instead of death. And so the halal begins with this, blessed be the name of the Lord, and then we come to Psalm 118, and in verse 26 it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is coming as a representation, coming with the same character, like an ambassador. We we don't we're not privileged enough as a people to say, have a a visit at the White House. We often will have to meet with intermediaries. No man has seen God and lived. And so, here we're having an opportunity, we have to recognize that we, we're not worthy of entering into the presence of the Lord. We have to have an intermediary come to us to tell us what the Lord is and who He is like. And to take the name of the Lord as your own, you actually have to recognize who you are. the only kind of bride that God marries and takes to His person are barren, enslaved, blind, and dead people. That's the only kind of person that can actually enter into his presence, but wait a second, didn't you just say that we couldn't enter into his presence? Yes. Marriage is a unique thing. If a bride is married to the Son of God, then in reality, she's no longer barren, she's no longer enslaved, she's no longer blind, and she's no longer dead. Marriage changes the status of an individual. Like a bride who takes her husband's name, you must first own your own story and then embrace the name that changes your story. To hold on to your own name and not embrace another name is is prideful. Because what you do when you you say, well, I can can actually stand in His presence, I can stand at the altar with God, and, and I can keep my own name. What you're saying is that your own name has equivalence of worth. But is that true? Jacob couldn't stand in the presence of God with his old name. He had to have his name changed. Because his character was deceiver. He had to be changed and it, and take on the name of, of God and become prince with God. Now, is your name, which is based upon your own character, when everyone hears your name, they associate something with it, for better or for worse. When people hear the name John Banks, they associate some things about it, and it might hurt I might not like to hear what people associate with that name. But can I actually think that my own name is of sufficient weight with that of the Lord that it could be on the same register? No way. And so, Psalm 118 begins to show us the importance of taking on a different name, a name that's not yours, a name that comes to you by somebody else. And it comes in a very strange, mysterious way. It actually comes through death itself. It comes through, as I've already interposed, the idea of the cross. And the cross itself is a triumph that frees us to be able to stand in the presence of God? To be at the altar and to be able to take upon myself the name of the Lord? How does that occur? Well, in Psalm 118, we find the words that are sung by the crowds who are holding the palm branches. They were laying down their garments for Jesus, and the donkey was going over top of those Those garments, and he approached the gates of Jerusalem. This is the start of the triumph song. And there are several voices that start singing this song, Psalm 118. It begins, it begins like a, a leader calling out and then a response. And so, in verse 2 through 4, we, we hear these words, let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. You have to be able to say it. You have to be able to articulate and know the character of your God. No one can say, well, you know, I, I'm coming in the name of the Lord. I can tell you what He's like if you can't really tell others what He's like. You have to know who He is. It's the start of the triumph song, and then it, it kind of is a collective congregational song, and then, and then it turns personal in verse 5 to verse 13 and 16. He says, out of my distress, I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Verse 13, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord had disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This is a very personal story. Yes, it's the story of Israel, but as people are singing this, they're starting to realize, you know what, if God has been merciful to us as a nation, then He has been merciful to me. I am standing here because God has been gracious to me. You think about it, no nation in history of the world has died like Israel has died. I know... We see their flag down at the United Nations. Okay, we, we, so it's hard for us sometimes to realize that as a nation, they ceased to exist physically as a unified group in the land of Israel twice in their history. Israel was like a stone that the builder had rejected and said, we're throwing this away. It's not useful For the construction of this world. And Israel was tossed aside twice. And yet, in Psalm 118, verse 22, we see these words, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day of that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Going back to my analogy about the husband, the husband, in this case, allowed himself to be rejected so that his bride might be saved. He did not allow his honor that he required to To be such that he could not humble himself and allow himself to be beaten, to be broken, to provide salvation for his bride. The Lord in his character, he is a faithful husband to an unfaithful bride. God is gracious to the barren, to the enslaved, to the blind, and that's the story of Jesus. Now, we can read this now with eyes filled with an understanding of who it's referring to. But this was a mystery for ages as to the identity of who this person would be. Jesus was willing to take upon himself the barrenness, the enslavement. He lived a sinless life with no hope of any offspring. He, 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 he was a single man his whole life. In that sense, He he was barren, if you will. He was bound for sins that were not His own. He was bound to a cross. He was blindfolded. He was struck. And just like Jonah, He passed through death for three days and three nights. Jesus became worthless because of His deep love for His bride. He became the stone that was rejected. He took upon himself that which Israel herself deserved and also that which we, by implication, the whole world deserve. You know, Jesus' last publicly recorded words are recorded in John 12, and Jesus said this. He said in John twelve forty four, He said, Whosoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus came as a representation of the character, the name of the Lord. He was the beloved one. Jesus is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the one who can show us the nature of the Heavenly Father, the faithful husband to the barren, the enslaved, the blind, the dead. John 1, 9 to 11 says this, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. You know, Jesus rode that donkey through the gates of Jerusalem, right up to the temple. And then the crowd disappeared. It was like, well, that was fun. But Jesus, in his whole ministry, represented the healing of the blind, the the lame, the... The, the baron, the, the, the woman who, who had an issue of blood for so many years, like there's, there's like he exemplified all of the images of the Old Testament perfectly, and yet they couldn't see, they couldn't see. He went right up in the course of his, his uh, last week on earth. It was like he, he rode up into Jerusalem through the gates, And it was like he tied up the offering at the altar. Look at verse uh, 26 and 27. He says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So ironic. The people at the gates calling out to Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Jesus himself is walking up the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And he's walking right up to the to the altar and he's allowing himself to be bound to the altar. And yet they don't see it. The reason they don't see it is because they can't see that the history of Israel is their own history wait a second, we sing these songs every four years. Oh. They didn't personalize it. They didn't look at the songs as something that was being told about themselves. Oh, that's, that's, that's kind of like our, our, our nation story. That's not really my story. Well, wait a second. You're part of the nation. It's your story too. The Egyptian halals finish with a request to open the gates of righteousness in verse 19. The one who is personally realizing that the Lord has been redemptive in their life, verse 19 says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have Answered me and had become my salvation. You know, if you've been singing Psalm one eighteen since you were knee high to a grasshopper, you would be singing about the gates of righteousness and going into the gate. The gates of righteousness would come to your mind when Jesus, in his sermon, would say, "Strive to enter the gate." The narrow gate. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. Jesus, in his ministry, also personified the gate. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You have to come to the Father through me. I'm the gate, I'm the sacrifice. I'm the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to be a sacrifice for you. But you have to own your identity. You have to realize that you are barren. You are enslaved to sin. You are blinded by your own desires that keep you away from a real relationship with god in all practicality your life doesn't have great value you're really dead because you're outside of a relationship with god himself you have to own the story yourself now wait a second why is the cross a triumph song it was it was a transaction It was a triumph because Jesus, who was already righteous before God, he became sin for his bride. And she is given righteousness through union with him. Just as if a man or woman were standing at the altar, as soon as they're married, guess what happens? If that woman or that man has debt... All of a sudden, that debt gets transferred to the other person. And if, in the analogy of a husband and a wife, if the husband has lots of money, all of a sudden that wealth is transferred to the bride, it's hers now. And that's why the cross is such a beautiful story of mercy and grace. Israel was not a looker. She was not someone that would have, anyone would have laid eyes upon to redeem. But because of redemption and relationship to the Father, she is decked in beauty and glory and the most beautiful gown you could ever imagine. And that's how the cross becomes a triumph song, because it's a trade. I don't have anything to offer. Christ has everything to give me. It's of His righteousness that we receive. So how do we use the, tr- the cross as our triumph song? Well, first, we actually got to see it as our, our triumph song. Have you ever, have you ever known a couple who have, um, maybe they've celebrated 50, 60 years of, of marriage, and they're, they're having a gathering, and Maybe, you know, sometimes they have a song that has meant a lot to them through the years. It's kind of like their song. And so they kind of go, go out to like the, the floor in the center of the gathering, and the lights go down, the song starts to play, and they start waddling around on the dance floor. It's cute, right? But it's been their song through the years. And in a similar way, we ought to be seeing the cross as our triumph song. You look back on your own human experience, and you need to, you know, you recognize every time I don't deserve this relationship with God. I don't know how this all came together, but I can sing the song of the cross. It's a triumph. He triumphed. Have you personally come to look at the cross and see the love of God for you? Do you look at the cross, though, maybe, and look away in horror and say, ugh, that's that's weird. Or maybe you say, I'm not really that bad. Yeah, but you're, it's your sins that were the cause of the wounds in Jesus' hands. Do you look deeply at those wounds and recognize the beauty of those wounds? Because they speak great things for you. They offer you life. They l- offer you um, freedom. They offer you a lack of barrenness. You, you, you have real life now because of it. Well, it may be that you're stunted in your view because you've never made the song of the cross your own. John 3:16 to 17. John 3:16 to 17 says for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He went through the gates, He bound Himself to the altar, and He did that because He loves you dearly. Do you see it this way? Do you believe this to be the case? And if you do, recognize that it was your sins that put Him there. Seek forgiveness. He's generous with his riches. He he wants to forgive us of all our sin and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. But this song is also supposed to be a song which shall never end. Each time that you sing the song of the cross, your heart should be drawn closer to him. We say the word hallelujah, it means praise the Lord. From the heart, do we say, praise the Lord when we see the cross, when we sing the old rugged cross, or, oh, to see the dawn, or or, or another song? Are we in our hearts praising the Lord? 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is an ongoing, available opportunity for all who put their faith and trust in Christ. This is the song that's supposed to never end, the song of the cross. The closing verses of Psalm 118 says this, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. It's an encouragement to make, make the story of the cross your triumph song. And in this way, the cross becomes a triumph song indeed. Our favorite songs should be the songs of the cross. They should move us to tears, they should move us to joy, they should move us to loving action for Him Is the cross beautiful to you?